0: This podcast is part of the BombPod Media Network. This is Ember, Angel, and Nikki. Do you love true crime? Of Of course course you you do. Do Do you crave all the true details hidden in each case? Of Of course course you you do. Do Do you have a dark sense of humor and need a touch of comedy to balance out those gory details? Of Of course course you do.
1: Are you okay with language that would make a sailor blush? Of course, course you are. are.
0: If you answered yes, then you should come hanging out with us, the gory gals of the Color Me Dead podcast. Come play with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Color Me Dead Pod or Color Me Dead Podcast.
1: We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, and Overcast, or any other podcast
2: app
0: we release on wednesdays because on wednesdays we wear murder don't forget to wear your sunscreen spay and neuter your pets use the buddy system and And stay stay out out of chalk lines lines. Goodbye.
1: goodbye
2: All right, everybody. Welcome to episode sixty-five. I'm going to try to muddle through this. I have a horrible cold, and my voice is probably going to snap, crackle, and pop. Uh, It's not Rice Krispies. It's just uh, me trying to get through this.
0: Oh, I feel sorry for you, babe.
2: So, what we're going to do? uh, This is a very special episode. This is our episode where we have a rare interview from Father Gary Thomas who is The Exorcist that uh, they based the movie The Right, starring Anthony Hopkins off of.
0: Man, that, if y'all have not seen this movie, you need to. It is an awesome movie.
2: Excellent movie. There's definitely some differences, and we're going to cover that. Uh, I'm going to try to get through this story. Um, if This is probably the best my voice has sounded all day. We've been working on it. So I don't know if I can get all the way through it, but we're going to give it a shot. So we're going to skip any of the um, uh, iTunes reviews and uh patreon supporters and stuff just to try to get through this but we do want to definitely want to say thank you to all of our uh, military and civil servants across the country god bless
0: you all god bless you
2: all right so we're going to jump into this first story this ties in a little bit to, um, and you'll see as we get into it, to what we're going to talk about with Father Gary Thomas uh, as far as what was going on in Europe during 2004-2005 with the occults. So that ties into when all these exorcists started being appointed. Um, so this first story is going to be kind of the, um, you guys like some of the music episodes we do, and this is going to tie right into it. It's on uh, an Italian heavy metal group called Beasts of Satan.
0: Ooh. That's so, a scary name. Yeah,
2: it actually is. So let's jump in right into this. Beast of Satan was, like I said, it an Italian heavy metal band. Members of this group committed three satanic ritual killings over a six-year period.
0: Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah.
2: The BBC called the crimes the most shocking crimes in post-war Italy.
0: Oh, man. So and that goes all the way
2: back to World War II. So you're talking the early 40s. Yeah. The first incident was in January 1998. It was a double homicide that occurred in the woods northwest of Milan, Italy. I'm going to probably butcher these names because they're all Italian, but I'm going to try not to. Chiara Marino uh, and her boyfriend, Fabio Tallis, were actually stabbed to death and beaten in a drug-fueled ritual involving sex and heavy metal.
0: Dang. They partied hard, for sure. Well,
2: the young couple had spent the night uh, drinking at this little bar that was uh, called the Midnight Pub. And that's that's what they typically would do on the weekend. And which I guess it's odd. I guess it's different in Italy because like the boyfriend's were only like sixteen years old, but they were at this bar drinking. Oh dang, how I was gonna say so, how did that work? Yeah, they, they never actually uh, returned home, which is where the the first problem came into. Now both of them were stabbed to death by their friends Andre Volpe, Nicola Sapone and Mario Marcion.
0: Okay, they were stabbed by their friends?
2: Yes. They okay. were all part of this band.
0: That's messed
2: up. Now, Fabio was a good size to begin with. He was like 6'2", 220. Oh, dang. So he was a you know he was the 16-year-old boyfriend that was killed, but he was a bigger guy. He tried to defend himself and his girlfriend, but was overpowered by the group. Now, Volpe, I am guess that's right, but we're going to call him Volpe. Volpe, Sapone, and Marcion, um, they then, after they killed him, they danced on their grave. Yeah, they buried them in a shallow grave, and they danced on top of it.
0: What the hell is wrong with them? And they
2: were laughing and screaming, now you're zombies. Try to get out of that hole if you dare.
0: Oh, man, what a bunch of sickos. Was, <laughs> was that the, um, uh, what do you call that when they, was that the ritual if they got about the grave they were in?
2: I don't know if that was the actual ritual or not, because they, they didn't really cover what actually happened. As far as the mm-hmm. ritual, they just know that they, you know, and we'll get into more details about what happened at night as we go when we get into some of the confessions. Um, when the couple initially went missing, the police thought that they were just kind of ran off together and eloped. Because oh. that, well, friends and stuff talked about that, yeah. how much they loved each other and all that stuff. Michelle told us, which is Fabio's dad, he said he that he didn't buy that explanation. It's just that wouldn't like his son Something just seemed off about it. So he began his own little investigation. Just a few days, or a few I'm sorry, a few hours before his murder, Nicola Sapone forced Fabio to call home and tell his dad that he wouldn't be coming home that night. He said he, was going to be, he would rather stay with his girlfriend, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that tipped his dad off because he said that did not sound like him. You know, he, Obviously, he liked his girlfriend, but he wasn't the type to just say, I'm not coming home. I'm going to spend the night with my girlfriend. Okay. So his dad immediately um, kind of thought something was going on. He called the bar where they were at, and unfortunately, Shira and Fab- Fabio had already left the bar with who they thought obviously were their friends. Now, through some investigating, Mr. Tolis discovered how deep his son was into all this Satanism and occult.
0: Oh, so he had no clue. No, he
2: had no clue. And unfortunately, this whole Satanism and occult thing was what was really big into that heavy metal scene in Italy at the time. Mm -hmm. It was more of the death metal, not necessarily the heavy metal like Metallica and stuff, more like the mayhem stuff that we covered before, our old friends from mayhem.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: Now, Michelle Tolis spent the next six years doing everything he can to build a file uh, of all these activities that the bands, that all these people, the band that his son played in, because he had played in that band.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So he was building a file of all these things that were going on with the band and the people that were in the band. Six years Dude. worth of coming up with this stuff. When the third murder actually happened, he took his evidence to the police and used it to link the three murders all together, mainly to that Andrea Volpe.
0: Okay, I think I missed something. Do you mean six years... After he was 16 or six years before he was 16?
2: No, it was he was 16 when he died. It okay. was six years after.
0: Okay, because I was going to say, dude, he was like, what, 11, 10? Well,
2: you got to keep in mind, this third mur- murder happened in January of 2004. Mm-hmm. So their murder happened in 1998. So there was a six years difference oh, okay, between gotcha. the, the two murders mm-hmm. and then the third murder. Okay, so let's talk about the third murder a little bit. 27-year-old Maria Angela Pezzotta was the victim at that time, and she was the former girlfriend of Andre Volpe. Oh. So this goes back a little bit. Volpe later confessed that uh, he invited her over to dinner for, with himself and his current girlfriend, who was this high school uh, girl named Elisabetta Ballarin. hmm So she was only like 18 years old. Mm-hmm. He invited his ex-girlfriend over for a friendly dinner, and then it turned unfriendly after she got there. So the intentions wasn't to kill her. Now, well, Elizabeth- wait.
0: I know I'm stopping you. Sorry. He invited his ex-girlfriend to yes. the dinner, and then he invited his new girlfriend to the yes. dinner? Well, what the hell's wrong with that picture? I have no idea. What do you think is going to come out of that?
2: Well, this Elizabetta that he was dating uh, was a daughter of a pretty well-off family, So, she had money. So, this guy was like the exact opposite of what she would normally be hanging with. She had ran away from home to be with this guy, the Volpe guy. Oh, gotcha. Now, after um, Maria Angela arrived for dinner, Volpe decided that he was going to go ahead and kill her because of some new details. She knew way too much, basically. You always hear that story. They knew Mm -hmm. way too much. She knew everything about the the two murders before. She knew a lot about the the cult that they were uh, doing. So, she just decided that... Hey, it's probably best. And you got to keep in mind, these people were on drugs nonstop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not, they're probably super paranoid.
0: Oh, I'm sure. That's a lo- something uh, a lot of years to keep secret.
2: Yeah. So Volpe actually shot her in the throat.
0: Oh, dang. <laughs>
2: at point blank range after they had a oh. violent fight. He called Sapone and said, hey, uh, we have a little bit of an issue because uh, Maria Angela was still alive.
0: After he shot her yeah. in the throat?
2: She was in agony, but she was still alive.
0: Holy crap.
2: And, of course, Sapone, he's like the leader of the group. He chastised Volpe and told him, you can't even kill a person. And then he threatened him. So then he comes over to the house. They tried to hide her dying body in the greenhouse of uh, Elisa Beta's house, even though she was still alive. So they were going to try to bury her in a shallow grave in this little greenhouse. To finish trying to kill her off, they hit her in the head with a, a very heavy shovel several times. My and then God. just continued to bury her. So Pone then went back home and pretended like nothing had happened. I mean, this was no big deal to him. Just, we'll, we'll just whack somebody in the head with a shovel and bury him alive. No big deal. Hours later, though, this is where the mistake Volpe and Elizabeth decided, after they took a huge dose of cocaine and heroin, that they were going to get rid of uh, uh, Maria Angela's car. Mm-hmm. So they were going to drive it into town, all hopped up on whatever they were on, and they had a wreck. Hello, and was stupid. arrested.
0: Oh, you're stupid! Yeah. Stupid.
2: Now, after the arrest, Volpe and Elizabetha confessed to the murder. The investigator, of this whole murder um, investigation of this whole murder, along with Michelle Tolis' info, would let them to be able to tie all of the mm-hmm. deaths together because it led them right to the buried bodies of Marie Nolan Toulis, his son.
0: People, you got to think.
2: It also tied on made them aware of this cult actually existed and, and how much other stuff could be going on.
0: Well, that's good. I mean, that's a—that's what they get. At least some of the truth will come out.
2: Right. Now, Massillon, who was kind of the medium of the group and was also Tolus' best friend, he confessed to beating Fabio Tolis to death with a hammer after uh, Velope and Sapone had stabbed him. Oh,
0: my God. I just visioned that in my head.
2: Yeah, actually beat him in it. And this was his best friend.
0: Oh, my Lord.
2: The cult was also accused of pushing uh, then the drummer, which his name was uh, Andre Botelot, to commit suicide because he refused to join in on them, on the stabbing and everything of Mm -hmm. them because they were his friends. So they pretty much decided that they were going to put enough pressure bullying him that he one night just got real drunk, got behind the wheel of his car, and he just drove it drove it into uh, an accident where he killed himself.
0: That's terrible. That bullying shit's for the birds. Don't be doing it.
2: Now, on February twenty second, two 2005, Volpe was actually sentenced to 30 years for the 1998 murder and 2004 murder. The judge actually gave him a sentence of 10 years longer than what the prosecution was fighting for. Good. Michelle Tolis, of course, Fabio's dad, was happy with the sentence, but um, Sierra Marino's mom She wasn't happy at all. She said that she felt like that they completely got off uh, with a very light sentence after murdering people. Um, She was quoted as saying, they are murderers, it's just not fair. Mm -hmm. And I can agree with her.
0: No, I agree too.
2: Five more members of the band were sentenced to long prison terms in 2006. Uh, Nicola Sapone, who actually was kind of the leader of this whole thing, got got a life sentence and uh, basically was spent... The rest of his life, supposed to spend the rest of his life in jail. The um, reason we're doing this story tonight is because this was at a time, like we said in the beginning, where Satanism, the occult, was really uh, ramping up in Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So much for the that that the Pope was concerned enough that he demanded all the bishops to appoint exorcisms oh, wow. because of the growing occult and Satanism problem in Europe period, wow, but no mainly kidding. in Italy. And that's when all this happened. He felt like that um, it was becoming an attraction to mm-hmm. the Italian youth. Right. Now, the Roman Catholic Church connected the Vatican, began offering these two-month courses on uh, diabolical possession and exorcism for any kind of priest mm-hmm. that wanted to join up. This is around the same time that our next guest, obviously Father Gary Thomas, uh, went over there to start taking classes. All this ties into each other.
0: Oh, wow. Very cool.
2: So how about that for a, a music episode? Man,
0: I tell you what, that is so disturbing to think that your friends would do that to you. I mean, it's it's horrifying.
2: Yeah, I mean, these are supposed to be your best friends and people you're in a band with and what mm-hmm. have you. So, yeah, it's kind of...
0: So I guess, in, I guess like... The drummer just felt like he had no way of escaping.
2: Yeah, and that's the way a lot of people are when they're in a cult. They just feel like that they, you know, once they're in, they can't get out.
0: But they can. Can't they?
2: Well, yeah, drive your car into a Well, pole no, or I something.
0: don't mean <laughs> get out that way. Surely, my goodness.
2: Well, I guess this isn't going as horrible as I thought it might, so we've got another story to do. Okay, good, baby. This is actually a listener story. Um, if you're a patron listener... You've heard Celeste tell a story yeah. on there before. She had an awesome story about um, uh, her wife mm-hmm. and and uh, actually having some situations going on in the house that was related to her wife. Well, she actually sent this cool story that's her about about her mom. It's not about her, but it's a story that her mom has told her okay. over the years. So this happened back around 1978. Her mom was a college student. This is a. a you know, like I said, back in 78. So, she's, she's coming back to campus one day. And her car broke down on I-26 in Charleston, South Carolina. This was a very remote part of the freeway. And in 1978, there were no cell phones or anything like that. So, she had no way of contacting help. She basically was just sitting on the side of the road in the middle of the dark. Yeah, no. Right. So, <laughs> about that time, this man comes by. He's He's dressed in all white. He's in an all white truck. He pulls over to help. He comes out. It's an African-American man. He's dressed in an all-white painter suit, and he offered to give her a ride.
0: Well, that's nice.
2: Well, she refused at first because this was a complete stranger.
0: Right. Well, I can see that.
2: He made her feel comfortable by showing her pictures of his family, and uh, he kind of insisted that she come with him. Mm-hmm. She's a little nervous, but she goes and gets in the truck because it just seems safer than being there on the side of the road. Right. He took her to this little gas station where she called the cops in a tow truck. She turned around to thank the man, but then when she turned around to him, he was gone. No way. And nobody can remember seeing the man there.
0: Well, yeah, you would think you would notice, remember somebody in a white suit and, or mm. like a white...
2: Yeah, so nobody, nobody remembers seeing him. So the police take her back to her car. It's this beautiful red 1965 Mustang. Nice. Only to find out that it had been completely vandalized. Not Nice. Tires had been slashed. All the windows had been broken out. The seats were all cut up. It's especially sad because this is a car that she had had since she was a teenager. You know, so yeah. this was like a little special car to her. The cops told her that the area that where she was broke down at was a frequent area for gang ac- activities. And she's lucky that she actually left and took that ride when she did. So they said the last woman who broke down in that area. on uh, She had been approached by the gang while she was still in her car. They actually robbed her and shot her to death. Oh, no. Her mom never found the guy who actually gave her the ride, and there's no surveillance footage of him.
0: Oh, wow. So he was an angel.
2: Well, Celeste said exactly that. She likes to think that he was an angel because without him, she wouldn't have been born. This was her mom.
0: Yeah.
2: Now, there's a strange ending to this story, though. Years later, her cousin got into a horrible automobile accident. One of her cousins was actually ejected from the car. Now, he claims that a man in a white jumpsuit pulled over, loaded him into his truck, and drove him far enough out so he could get to an ambulance. Like before, he was wearing all white and was never seen again.
0: I love him.
2: And for the record, uh, the Mustang has actually been completely restored, and they actually can drive that still today.
0: (gasps) Yay for a happy ending! I love yeah. him. I love that's, that angel.
2: That's a really cool story. It
0: is cool.
2: I know oh, we did. Um, um, I can't remember what road it was, but we did. I think it was the the one in Florida, the I four. I think mm-hmm. it's what it was. Mm-hmm. Where we did the, um, and there was a story similar to that in there, where the woman had been picked up by a trucker who took her to the gas station, yeah. and then there was no sign
0: of him. Yeah. Of him
2: after that. So that's pretty cool. Aww. That.
0: That makes me so happy, and I'm glad her car's good today. That's great.
2: Yeah, so, you know, and you're talking, that was 78. So, I mean, it's been, what, almost 40 years.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad Mommy was safe so we could have your beautiful soul on this earth. Yay.
2: Absolutely, that's not over the top at all.
0: I wouldn't. I'm happy about this. <laughs> this is good stuff. All
2: right, guys, I made you wait long enough. Uh, this is the uh, one of the, my, my all-time favorite guests as far as... Um, I can't believe we actually got him. I know, this is crazy. It took a lot of effort, and uh, he told me no, as we talk about on the interview. And uh, I was persistent because I think you guys would enjoy this as much as I enjoyed it. So, uh, without further ado, here is Father Gary Thomas. All right, I am excited to be joined on the phone by a special guest. This guest I think most of you will know even if you don't know the name right off the bat. Uh, Please welcome to the show Father Gary Thomas.
1: Good evening, Jerry.
2: Thank you, Father Thomas, for uh, granting us this time tonight. Now, I said most people may know who you are already without knowing the name right off, because Father Gary Thomas is actually the most famous exorcist in the United States right now. And one of the main reasons is that because Matt Balio wrote a book called The Right, The Making of a Modern Day Exorcist, that was based on his experiences over in Rome, learning to be an exorcist, which then inspired a movie uh, called The Right. Now, we're not going to touch a whole lot on the movie tonight because I know there's a lot of changes, or or not changes so much, but Hollywood-styled movie as opposed to what the book really was. But, Father Thomas, how cool was it to be able to sit down at a a world premiere of a movie with Anthony Hopkins?
1: Well, so in terms of working with Anthony Hopkins, um, I have to say, I mean, you know, to be working on a major motion picture with, you know, one of the few greats, I believe, in Hollywood was uh, quite enjoyable. And obviously, it was a, probably a one time experience that I'll always remember. He was most um, uh, gentlemanly like. Uh, we had a very nice repartee. He was quite open to suggestions on the set and uh, was, was per- personally very interested in the ministry. And so we did spend a lot of time. You know, off camera, uh, discussing the ministry that I've been involved in for twelve years now, and uh, I have to say it, it was a fairly enjoyable experience.
2: So let's ask the obvious question: You know, how does one become, in in your case, an exorcist from going from the day to day regular responsibilities of being a priest to now jumping into exorcism? How did that take place?
1: To say it was probably very providential. Um, It wasn't a role I was seeking. It was a role that became available. Um, The bishop of our diocese had um, approached uh, my very closest priest friend because of a mandate that came from John Paul II in 2004 that every bishop in the world should select a priest and train them to be an exorcist in response to the growing occult activity in Europe at the time. And so this same priest who our bishop had asked um, had a very, very serious background in spirituality and had a doctorate to go with it from Catholic University. And so he approached myself and the other members of our prayer group that we, those five of us that are part of a, a, a priest support group monthly, and we all said, we all endorsed the bishop's opportunity and offered him for him to go and uh, and to take on this role, and a month later, when we had our next meeting, he he said he had declined, and I just simply spoke up and said, I could I could be the exorcist. I believe in the personification of evil, and so uh, the same priest then said, you mind if I tell the bishop? I said, no, and both myself and this priest were getting ready to leave our assignments, and I was going on sabbatical to Rome for a period of a year, and so our bishop said, there's a course you can take in Rome. Well, while I, once I enrolled in the course, Matt Balio was also taking the course as a, as a non-cleric. And, um, you know, it became very clear while I was taking the course that I really needed to find an exorcist really to apprentice under. And one of the other Americans in the course, and there's only three of us, it was Matt, myself, and another Franciscan. He was apprenticing under an 85-year-old priest uh, at a very famous church in Rome. And he would come every Thursday to class and tell us these experiences. And so I, I said, I don't, I've don't. i really got to go find someone, which I did. And I found a priest, a Capuchin priest by the name of Father Carmen de Fipolis, And I apprenticed under him for three months. And I, I was with him three days a week for three hours at a time. And I observed about 80 exorcisms during that time. And that's really why I learned the basics, along with theology, the theology I was taking in the course, I learned the basics for the ministry.
2: let me ask you this. can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with with Father Carmen and what you experienced with him how different it was from the classroom setting of what they were teaching you
1: well, the, the classroom setting was 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 a, was more of a, a series of workshops than they really was hard theology, so they would present the issue of demonology from um, a, uh, the point of view of criminology, the point of view of theology, the point of view of the high-tech world that we're living in, the point of view of pornography, and a few other subjects that were that are very related to this ministry in terms of the doorways. And so when I work, the difference between that, however, and working with Father Carmen, is that you're in the middle of the battle. I mean, you, you, you go into a, a small room, and the person comes in, and Father Carmen would greet them, and then he would, he would sprinkle them with holy water, and we would begin the ritual. And very soon, often, the person, the person's own behavior would begin to manifest in very, very, um, un, in unhuman type ways. And you could see very clearly early on, in, most of the time, yeah, there would be clearly a very threatened kind of presence that would overtake the person sitting in the chair, and so the difference between the classroom and the hands-on, you know, um, settings with Father Carmen was that you were you found yourself really in the co- in the middle of a cosmic battle between good and evil.
2: So, what, you said you experienced about. Approximately eighty exorcisms during that uh, three month span. Man, that seems like a lot. Is it? Is that the norm, or is there that many people out there that have demonic possession, or was it a sign of the times for that that point in Europe? What is it? Just tell me what your opinion is of that.
1: Well, at the time, I was really very much of a novice. I would say, first of all, the, the Italians have a very different approach to the whole process leading up to a formal exorcism. Um, In the Course, you're taught very clearly to build, to assemble a team, a team of, you know, medical and psychological psychiatric experts. You're also taught to develop and form a prayer team. In my experience, the priest I work with had neither, and that's really much more of the norm in Italy, where they don't necessarily have they don't follow a protocol to the same degree that we do here in the United States where we never start out with a formal exorcism we start out with first of all doing an assessment of the person's situation and then very much listening for what were the what are the potential doorways through which a preternatural entity could potentially um, have a legal right to take hold in a person's life. Now, in general, we never assume that when a person comes in, they have a demonic problem. We never assume anything. And I think that's the correct approach. I'm not suggesting in the Italians they did, but very often, they would start off with exorcism, whereby even in the ritual, the very last thing an exorcist does in the protocol would be a formal exorcism. And again, that varies Judgment wise, from, pre- from exorcist to exorcist. But generally speaking, sort of the thumbnail rule is you get people, for a Catholic at least, you get them into a rhythm of prayer and the sacraments. And you establish that rhythm, and then you do, you perform what we call deliverance prayer, which are prayers addressed to God, in which we ask God, if there be something attached, something intelligent attached, that it be cast. And you do that for a time, and a time could be a few months, maybe to a little bit longer to see whether or not you're actually going to see improvements. But when I was with Father Carmen the entire three plus months, there was never a team and there were never consultants. And I mean, they just, they have a whole different way of doing these things in Italy. And I think that's one of the reasons why in Italy they do so many exorcisms. There are, according to the course that I took, Approximately 25% of the population of Italy are occult practitioners. And that's very, very significant. And so you've got a lot of people, you know, in the population that are practicing paganism and clearly are opening doors. We have the same problem in the United States. I just would not be in a position, I certainly would doubt that the, that the percent of people who are open, open practitioners of, you know, Satanism and the occult and the New Age would be anywhere near twenty five percent.
2: I would hope not. That seems like a, a very high number.
1: Well, and I and that number actually came from the course. That's not a number that I came up with. That's a number that was quoted in the course by one of the presenters.
2: Well, I do know from from some prior research on uh, some other subjects that we've done, uh, namely a, um, a heavy metal band in Italy by the name of Beasts of Satan that uh, committed some ritualistic murders. That it did come up during that time about the 2004-2005 range, where the Pope was concerned about you know the occult and uh, the inspiration on the youth in Italy, which was one of the main reasons, like you said, that they started um, appointing these exorcists. So it definitely had to be, you know, that's why I asked, what it was, it a sign of the times for Europe at that at that point?
1: Oh, I, I think the answer, the short answer is yes, and since then. A lot more bishops now, I can't speak for the rest of Europe, but I can't speak for Italy because in my times when I've gone back there, at least one of the times, the first time I was back after I came home from my sabbatical, I met with Father Carmen, and Italy, the Italian bishops had appointed many more exorcists.
2: So let me ask you this, so now, now we get through with your, your sabbatical in Italy, you're back um, in your home church. How many requests for exorcisms would you say that the, the church receives your church over the course of a year? Is it something like an astronomical amount, or is it way less than you would think?
1: Well, no, I think it's a lot more than people realize. I mean, first of all, I'm the exorcist for the Diocese of San Jose in California, so it isn't—I'm not the exorcist for, for my particular parish. I'm the exorcist for the local church, which is the entire county of Santa Clara, which is the Diocese of San Jose. So in the Catholic system, exorcists are appointed by local bishops, and they are, they, we have a territory, namely I have, I'm the exorcist for my diocese, so that means I don't go all over the world performing exorcisms unless I have the permission of that bishop and the permission of my bishop. But I would say, certainly on average, we probably get six to ten phone calls a week where people are calling, asking for help of one kind or another, in, in, you know, in specifically in this ministry. Now, not every one of these cases, by the way, you know, ends up being an exorcism. Many times the people are calling it mental health issues, and my team's role is to kind of ferret out, okay, first of all, who do we see? And then secondly, we do some discernment as to, you know, is this something that can be handled through some other means other than through the, the ministry of exorcism. But currently, right now, I'm, I'm praying with about nine people on a monthly basis.
2: Okay, and when you say praying with, is that praying with from an exorcism standpoint? Yes, or?
1: there would not be formal exorcisms. There's only one I'm doing formal exorcisms with. The other ones are all prayers of deliverance. But prayers of deliverance for a mandated exorcist like myself means I can still address the demons directly. It's just that I'm not doing formal exorcisms. I would be doing what's are considered minor exorcisms as opposed to the solemn rite. Because, again, if you, can, if you can liberate the person without having to do a formal exorcism, that's actually a better thing than to actually involve oneself in formal exorcisms unless you really have to. Because, you know, you're putting everybody, you're putting the person at risk. Um, that's not to say that they're not at some risk any time you're doing deliverance prayer. But when you really ramp things up to a formal exorcism, you need to be absolutely sure what you're dealing with
2: so let me ask you this you you've got the calls that come in. you take your steps to weed out uh the ones that that need the the uh exorcisms the ones that might have mental health stuff what do you 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 guys use to determine hey this person definitely needs some type of deliverance or this person needs a formal exorcism what's the key factor between the two
1: well first of all you in a sense when you you do the intake questionnaire you're always listening for doorways so you're listening to their experiences of growing up you're listening to their experiences of their family unit you're listening to their experiences of any of any kinds of of practitioner um Activity involving the new age and the occult. You're asking questions about any traumas in their life, including sexual or physical abuse. 80% of the people who come to me are sexual abuse victims. And so that's a soul wound in and of itself. Very, very often, when people mix, you know, the new age and the occult with being a, an, abu- abu- an abuse victim, a sexual abuse victim, it's like putting a bullseye on your back and waving a flag, and letting a demon know that you're interested in a relationship. Now the vast majority of people who who fall into that category aren't really seeking any relationship with a demon, but that's what a, that's what a possession is. It's a relationship. And I'd say nine times out of 10, the person is simply involved in the occult for a variety of reasons, most of the time not to conjure a demon, but to somehow you know use cheap imitations to get power and knowledge in terms of their personal lives. And so, you know, part of the diagnostic is that you do deliverance prayer to see if if there are oh first of all, if there are open doorways, you would do deliverance prayer to as a diagnostic to see if you can actually uh threaten the demons sufficiently enough if there's one there to make it manifest. And, and there are six classic signs, you know, in, in, in a, with a demonic condition. You know, there's a, aversion to the sacred. Uh, there's foaming at the mouth. There's inordinate physical strength that person doesn't normally possess. They're speaking in a language they don't have any competency in. There's a knowledge of hidden things. And oftentimes there are um, epileptic-like seizures that show up in the person's limbs, as well as in the person's face. And those, so you don't need to have all six of those signs to be able to say this person has a demonic condition. All you really need is one. You know, And every situation is different. They're all very different. They're not all the same.
2: So once you have determined that someone meets the criteria, then what is the next step that you have to take?
1: Uh, well, you would you would certainly, more, more likely than not, we would have the person go to Wyoming probably our clinical psychologist to get a read to see if there are any psychological conditions that are part of this issue. And also you would continue doing deliverance prayer if it's determined that the person is exhibiting signs of a demonic condition in the attempt to try and liberate the person fully so that they no longer are having to be under the oppression or possession of a demonic system. They only go to a formal exorcism, when you've been doing deliverance work for a while and where you really kind of end up hitting up, you, you reach a judgment whereby you believe, the exorcist believes, that doing performing a formal exorcism will lead to a much more expedient outcome.
2: So I know you were talking about earlier um, people that you're praying with right now. And so with someone that you're doing a formal exorcism on, is this something that, you know, in, to go back and forth, like I say, one of the things we're wanting to accomplish is here is break down the reality of what you do as opposed to what people have been taught in the movies. So in a formal exorcism, this is something that can take place over days, weeks, or months, I'm assuming?
1: It, it, it usually takes place, in other words, you never do one exorcism. You might, uh, at the right of the solemn rite, or even deliverance sessions, they usually last about two and a half hours, two to two and a half hours at the most because neither myself nor my team nor the the person we're praying over can, that's about as much as one can do. Now they can go on longer and they have at times, but in my earlier years, I, you know, I've learned a lot from experience in terms of what's reasonable. So now I won't usually work for more than two, two and a half hours at the most. So There's never just one exorcism or even one deliverance session. They're usually, they could be several to many. It depends on on how many demons are attached. It depends on how ensconced they are. It depends on how powerful they are. It depends to some degree when God is ready to liberate them. And it partly depends on the degree to which they want to be liberated. I mean, I've had people say to me they didn't want to let go of the demons attached to them. Because they were afraid of how it would change their life. You know, and I've had to say to people, well, unless you're willing to, to let go of I can't do anything for you. God doesn't interfere in free will. You know, so we've sometimes severed relationships, not often but on occasion, where it's very clear the person's not ready to, to let go of the demon. And so they don't last over weeks. They last over weeks or months or sometimes even longer, they could last more than a year. I mean, we've been praying over one person for three years. And now we went and got a second opinion from another diocese because we had some suspicions about some of what we were seeing, and we wanted to make sure that what we were dealing with was actually what it was. And so um, we used another diocese as a consultant to say, we want you to basically discern whether or not what we think this is actually is.
2: Now, we've been taught uh, through movies that, one of the main powers that an exorcist uh, has is to get the name of the demon and use that against the demon. Is that a true uh, stereotype, or is that something that's just made up in Hollywood?
1: No, that that's actually in the That's in the ritual in the Catholic tradition. This is not true in the Protestant tradition, but in the Catholic tradition, um, it's essential you get the name because in the same way that. On the, uh, the, the rite of baptism, the first question that's asked in the Catholic tradition is, what is your name? Or if it's a child who's not able to answer for themselves, the parents will answer for the child. What is the child's name? That is a way of calling attention to a, a, a whole invitation that parallels God calling the prophets by name, Jesus calling the disciples by name. So when, when they were called they were called into the light. They were called into the realm of the light. In the same way at baptism, the child or the adult or the person who's old enough to speak for themselves is being called into the realm of the light. So when the demon, in a perverse way, is being called by their name, what is your name? The demon wants to avoid that because to be called into the realm of the light is, is their condemnation and their, and, and their defeat. So the demon never wants to give up his name because as soon as the demon does, it begins to lose its power. And so it's essential that I get the name. And if they don't give me their real name, I'll assign them a name. And they have to accept it. Because I'm the mandated exorcist of the diocese. And they're legalists. And they have to they have to basically play by the rules, the spiritual rules that have been set up.
2: Well, that's incredible because I I never would have thought You know, you think about, like, NATO and stuff like that with, with, you know, war games and all the different countries having to agree that even in times of war they play by certain rules. But I never thought from a spiritual standpoint that, like, demons would have to play by a certain set of rules. I would just immediately think they would have their own set of rules.
1: Well, you have to remember, though, they will play by the rules, but they are incredibly exact. So they will only tell you exactly what you ask which is why you have to be very very clear about what you're asking for from them because they'll do everything they can to disguise their answers in a way that leads you down a path that goes nowhere
2: so let me ask you this question i've seen a, a prior interview with you and and this kind of caught me off guard but it it said something to the point of of when you're doing a formal ex uh, exorcism that at least in the case the case that I heard of that you had the participant actually start off uh, lying on their stomach on the floor, yes, tell me a little bit about the reasoning behind that
1: well because the the demons in that man were so strong that even with five men on my team and I had four women but five men, we had a hard time restraining them, and so we we commanded we commanded the demons to lie the man on the floor to begin the exorcism. Because to put him in a chair would have been, it would have been, it would have put all of us in danger. And then we also invoke sometimes Saint Michael and the angels to come and restrain people, and they will. And so when we put him on the, when we put this man on the floor, when I said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to demand you get on the floor and be spread eagle, and then I asked the angels to come and restrain him. Um, he did. They did, excuse me. And, and that was the best way for us to initially start working.
2: Now, when you perform an exorcism, do you perform them typically in the church, or do you go to the house? What no. is the protocol?
1: Now, the normal protocol is the, all the exorcisms and deliverances take place in our church. With the doors locked, with a sign on the door that says, healing session and progress with the doors oiled with chrism, which is a sacred consecrated oil blessed by our Bishop to seal the demons in so that they can't escape. And you put the blessed sacrament out exposed. We call that the Eucharist. And they're always done in the church and in proximity to the, 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 um, blessed sacrament because the blessed sacrament is the real, it's the real and true presence of our Lord Jesus. And so, therefore, you want to always do the exorcisms as closely as possible in a church or an oratory in the presence and proximity of the Blessed Sacrament, always. So I've never done an exorcism in a house. I've done a house, I've done an exorcism of a house, but I've never done an exorcism of a human being in their residence. Um, I have prayed with people in psych wards a couple of times, but it's not ideal. And I would much rather do it in the church where we have much more control.
2: So, you said you did an exorcism of a house. Can you tell me a little bit about that situation and, and why you felt an exorcism or why an exorcism would be needed of a, of a house, per se?
1: Well, because the house had a, had a, had a spirit attached to it. So, there is, a, there is a rite, a ritual, for the exorcism of a thing or a place, including a house. I mean, it could be an object or it could be a piece of land. Or it could be, you know, as I said, it could be a, a place or a house. So at times, i receive calls from people who will express concern over either spirits they've seen with their own two eyes or, or realities, uh, paranormal activity in their house um, that they've observed or they've sensed. And so I usually will go out if it's in my diocese um and I will go and exercise the house with the right of exorcism of a place, which is very different than the right of exorcism of a human being. It's much shorter in length. It's you it's the, the, the prayer that's used is called the Pope of the thirteenth prayer. And you use whole you use exercise, water and salt and you go through every room in the house and there are specific prayers you pray and then I always go to every room in the house and then the entire outside perimeter of the house. And exercise the entire property, and it can be repeated.
2: Well, let me ask you this, because you brought up some of the the items you use with the salt. Now, I've I've heard in several different occasions on salt being used to keep things out. What is the power of salt? What is what is it about salt that that can discourage demons or or, or keeps them away? I've never really understood that point of it.
1: Well, salt is a preservative, and in the scriptures, Jesus talks about you know him being he himself being salt and light, and that salt um, has a flavor, obviously, to it. It, 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 it enhances food, and Jesus himself talk, referred to himself as enhancing uh, the insights into God, uh, the Creator. And so when you use salt in, in a religious context, it is bringing the presence of Christ uh, exercise salt is bringing the presence of Christ and warding off you know a demon from being able to stay attached
2: so let's let's go to when you first got back to the US and started doing this do you remember your very first exorcism that you performed by yourself
1: Yes I do it involved a woman um, and the bishop sent me uh, this family um, two days after I started my new assignment. And I didn't start off by doing exorcisms with her. I simply started off by getting to know her and doing prayers of deliverance with her and her friend. And um, at the time, I had no team, but they, she never came alone. She always came with her friends. So there was always someone else there with me. But early on, I did find another priest that would come and accompany me when I would have to do these deliverances. We never, We didn't move into formal exorcisms. For probably a good year um, after I became exorcist
2: so you jump in you because you're, you got thrown in really quick when after, after two days of it
1: I, I did I mean I had no team whatsoever and I had it obviously moved very slowly I didn't even have therapists to work with I mean I had I had done nothing I literally got home from Rome took up my assignment and two days after I started the bishop sent me this this man and this woman and the woman had demonic well, she, she had issues. We had a you know, I had a you know, initially I listened to her story, I prayed deliverance prayer with her, but then I had to go begin to amass a team, you know, and that, that took that took a while, you know, and I therefore I I did not do any formal exorcisms on her for a long time. I continued to work with her. She exhibited some manifestations, but they were actually, by today's standards, I would probably not have done what I did. I probably, you know, I think in her case, she probably needed more therapy than she needed, you know, ex- deliverance prayers. Um, but she she did show enough and exhibit enough that I felt that it did require eventually a formal exorcism.
2: You know, you were approached with, with this, you know, becoming an exorcist and going over and, and what you experienced, everything with, with Father Carmen, was this something you were fully aware of was, was in such need everywhere no. before that?
1: No, not at all. I, first of all, I didn't even know that we, had, we didn't have an exorcist. In the, in the days before the Second Vatican Council and even up until most recent times, the, the knowledge of who the exorcist was in a diocese, simply the knowledge of the local bishop, it was never made known to the clergy. And so in my case... Once, you know, the, the bishop permission for the book about me to be written and published, which I asked his permission, and then the movie to be produced, which I asked his permission, if I could work on the movie, um, I mean, I became very well-known. And, you know, even when I was going to school in Rome with a group of other priests, I used to say to them, you know, you, on Thursday mornings, you won't see me. I'm going to be out of this exorcism course, and a number of them said to me, "That is supposed to be a secret between you and your bishop." So, and then I called my bishop, and he was unaware of that. And so, there are dioceses now in the United States where the exorcist is known, and there are dioceses where it's a secret between the bishop and the exorcist. So, I, I personally think that it's there's a there's a wisdom in people knowing that a diocese has an exorcist and who it is. The downside is you get inundated with calls. But the upside is that people know they can get some help because there are dioceses in the United States where nobody knows the protocol to even know how to get a hold of somebody who knows anything, you know, about this ministry. And there are dioceses in the United States where bishops have failed to appoint someone. And when I get calls from certain parts of the United States, I'm really stuck because they have nobody to help people who at least need someone to discern with them and journey with them as to what their, the 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 source of their, their problem is.
2: Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think it. I think it is a positive that people know they have a, 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 somebody they can seek out if they have these issues. And like I said, it, whether it you know leads to them getting help uh, from some type of a mental issue or whether it means. Uh, a spiritual, spiritual issue, either way, you've got a way to get them covered, and I think that's an awesome thing.
1: Well, it gives people a sense of hope, Jerry. And I think when by the time people find me, they're very desperate. And they've been down the medical path, the psychi- psychiatric path, they've been down the meds path, and nothing works, and they've got big problems. And, you know, sometimes they'll turn to me out of desperation and then I try and at least give them some serious direction, sometimes that direction leads them back to me or to an exorcist in their own local diocese. And sometimes, you know, if the church really takes this seriously, then we've got to be able to provide therapists who really do have a spiritual optic. Most therapists are agnostics or atheists. And so very few therapists even believe in the reality of personified evil and intelligent evil, and because of that, that's why everybody on my team, every every therapist, I have two two psychiatrists, one's bilingual, two psychologists, one's bilingual, and the medical doctor, and then several other specialists I consult with regularly, almost all of them are practicing Catholics, and believers in the existence of Satan, and they have to be, because if they don't, then... How are they going to be able to discern whether or not a person really even has the possibility of a condition that we would refer to as, you know, a preternatural kind of condition?
2: No, and that's completely understandable. And, and, and you touched on that. That's, uh, you know, definitely a, a correct statement. There are a lot of these psychologists and, and uh, uh, psychiatrists that are completely either agnostic or atheist and that really doesn't uh, leave a lot of room f- to even conclude that something other than a scientific or medical problem could be the culprit, and uh, I, right. you got to look at the you got to look at it all the way around. I think to be able to to make an accurate assessment of people,
1: right? I but would agree.
2: Let's jump back to your time in Rome. You met uh, uh, Matt Balio. and how did the book come about? How did uh, how did your relationship? Get to the point to where what did he see? Where he thought, man, I think this would make a fascinating story.
1: Well, I think largely when when he found out that I was going to stay in Rome, and and once I you know once I started looking for an exorcist to work under, and then when I found one, that's when he said to me, "How would you feel if I wrote a book about your experiences?" So I think it was the fact that I was you know. Um, Seriously, trying to find a priest, a priest exorcist under whom to train. And when I found that person, that's a Matt, uh, said to me, how would you feel if I wrote a book about your experiences? And I said, sure, go ahead. But I never, ever had any, inv- I never envisioned that the book would become what it became or that there would ever be a movie that would follow it. That was never on the radar. I don't think for actually for, the movie wasn't on Matt's radar either. I mean, I think he was a surprised as I was when he called me and said, they're going to make a movie out of this. And New Line Cinema just bought the rights to the book. I was stunned. So was he.
2: Well, and I think we talked a little bit off the air, so I want to bring it up on the air real quick. It's important for people out there to know that the book that was written is 100% true to the the events that took place to where the movie definitely changed some stuff and, and took some liberties with a script.
1: Yes, that's very that's
2: very true. Watching the movie, uh, were you surprised at the way the movie turned out as opposed to what the book was? Was there any kind of disappointment or was it just eh, it's Hollywood, we knew they'd probably do something like that?
1: Well, personally, I guess my surprise I think if if the if the producers and the screenwriter had stayed closer to the the book, I think it would have been a better movie. Um, I don't think it was a poor movie. It was not a horror movie. It was a movie that was, um, it was more more of a movie about faith. And that was the intent of the, of the uh, that was the intent of the director and producer was to make, they wanted to make a very different kind of movie. They wanted to make a movie in which faith was the main focus and not horror. I think that they accomplished that well. But I think had they stayed closer to the book, I think it would have been a more effective movie, personally. Um, There wasn't anything in that movie that any... I mean, I I worked on the scenes involving the, the pregnant woman who became pregnant from, you know, incest, as if she was a victim of incest. All of those scenes were very accurate. And I worked on that set for a week just on those scenes. And demons can manipulate physical human bodies any which way they so choose to. And some of the critics, you know, poo pooed all that and said that can't happen. Yes, it can. Because the director kept saying to me on the set, what do you think? I kept saying it's very accurate. And so there wasn't anything in that movie that couldn't happen. Can, can demons possess animals? Yes, and they do. Could, could I, I never personally saw a red-eyed donkey <laughs> but that doesn't mean a red-eyed donkey couldn't exist, couldn't be a reality. Um, there are people, and I've had experiences where, not to the same degree as what the movie demonstrated, where there was the hoof of the donkey on the stomach of the little Italian boy, but I have seen people come in with bruises and scratches that they did not put there, nor did anyone else. So, And then they'll disappear in front of you. So, you know, I have seen some of those realities. Yeah, they're true. Um, the, the scene where, you know, my character, and I, my character is the young guy, the, uh, the young cleric, as opposed to Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins is my mentor in real life. Um, you know, the, the scene where I walk into a room full of frogs. Now, that didn't happen. But you have to remember, Hollywood is trying to make visual a demonic attack. Well, how do you make something... That's internal, external. So, very often when I get demonically attacked, it's with um, images involving sexuality. It is. They're not illegal images or they're not perverted images, but they are temptations. Now, I've learned to manage that much more now, but in the early years, uh, you know, sometimes the sexual temptations I would have would be much stronger than what I was really normally used to. And I, early on, I figured out talking to other exorcists, that it, these were demonic attacks. And I learned to basically manage it and control it and uh, pray against it. Um, so how do you take something that's an internal attack, put it on the screen in such a way that expresses a reality visually, even though what you're actually seeing never actually happened? You know, and that was intimidation. That was a demonic intimidation. Fill a room full of frogs. And that'll scare me, my character, from wanting to pursue this ministry. And, you know, it it initially had some effect on my character, but in the end, he prevailed.
2: Now, while we're on the subject of the intimidation factor, you see in a lot of movies, and I keep going back to that because our intention is to break down the stereotypes for the movies from the realistic, but you do see in a lot of these movies to where they will take a past incident and use it against your demon's will. Has that something you've actually experienced in real life?
1: Well, can you give me a little, Can you give me an example? What you mean by that? Yes,
2: like for example, let's take the original movie, The Exorcist. Uh, the, the the young priest in that movie had had lost his mother, felt like that he kind of left her alone and abandoned, was having guilt issues, and. The demon in the movie actually brought that up. Appeared to yes. be his mother. That type of situation. I think in in the right there was also actually uh yes. some situations like that. Yes,
1: too. yes, it involved my character's father who died, and then the demon that was manifesting through father car uh, through Anthony Hopkins, you know, accusing my character of not being there for my father and my of my father and me in the movie not having a good relationship. Now, I've not, I've not had those kinds of accusations, um, but I have had, you know, at times the sense that, you know, I'm not good enough um, or that I'm not, you know, faithful enough um, or that the prayers that I'm exhibiting are not powerful enough. On the other hand, that's not something that happens all the time. In fact, I mean, I know that Christ is with me at every exorcism, and I know Christ is more powerful than, than anything demonic, because Christ is God and Satan is a preternatural being, so there's not two equals. But, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I get demonic, I've been attacked physically, I got, I got fainted at a wedding a couple of years ago because I was sick from the night, from an exorcism the night before. Um, at times I've been physically attacked, but I've never been hurt, and I'm really not afraid, So um, the kinds of accusations, mental accusations, um, they don't happen a lot anymore. And again, I've kind of learned much more now how to manage it and realize it's Christ who's the exorcist. It's Christ who's the one, you know, through whom, who works through me, not me through Christ. It's Christ who works through me. Christ is the one who's the deliverer. And I'm there to cooperate in any which way that will help liberate this person but it's Christ who does the liberating.
2: Alright, I wanna end on this, Father Thomas. If if you could just spend a couple of minutes telling telling people out there what is the biggest misconception of exorcisms in the real world as opposed to what they've seen on, on television and movies. What how would you sum that up?
1: Well what a lot of what you see in the movies is actually very accurate. I mean I see a lot of drama um, in the exorcisms that, that I perform and the deliverances I perform. There's a lot of drama. So most of the drama you would see in the movies is pretty accurate. Now, in the movie The Exorcist, you know, there was no spinning heads in Greenpeace Soup. However, you got to remember, you're looking at something on a screen. How do you help visualize the drama of, uh, of a clash of the forces, a cosmic battle of good and evil going on? Well... You use you use metaphors to try and express truth. So there isn't green pea soup. On the other hand, there is foaming at the mouth. It may not be as dramatic um, in real life as it is in a movie, but if you saw what I saw, sometimes the foaming at the mouth can go on for 20 minutes or a half an hour, where it's this incessant kind of coughing, and the person is basically dry heaving. And it's not, you know, I see what's going on. My team sees what goes on. But if you put that on a screen, it wouldn't have the same effect. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is people think that exorcism is a big hoax or that the demons and Satan are medieval concepts that no longer apply um, or that Satan is a metaphor. The, The head of the Jesuit order, you know, recently made a what i thought was an incredibly asinine comment in which he said that satan was a metaphor for evil that couldn't be the that could be the farthest the, farthest thing from the truth in fact i'm surprised the holy father didn't didn't basically call the guy in or make a public comment about it because francis certainly regularly talks about the evil one and it's and his existence and so the biggest misconception is that this is all kind of made up, it's all Hollywood, it's a Hollywood invention, or it's, it's a metaphor. And none of those are true, they're all false. Satan is a, is, and the church teaches this, and it's not only because we teach it because it's true, we teach it because it is. You know, there is a creature who was once the angel of light, who rebelled against God over issues having to do with jealousy and envy of the human race. And took up a third of the angels with him in, in rejection of God and God's will, and that's what, in a sense, brought about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Christ eventually embraced our humanity as the second person of the Blessed Trinity and, and lived and suffered and died and rose and ascended, was to save us and put us back on a path where we would have a chance to have a gateway to heaven. And, you know, people can think that's all you know, not a big story, but it's not. It's, a, it's truth. And, and, you know, the world we live in today, what it cannot see, what it cannot measure, it doesn't value. And unfortunately, even in the scriptures say, what is seen is transitory, what is unseen is eternal. And so angels are pure spirits, and demons don't lose their office because they rejected God. They still maintain their office of angel, and they still retain their spirit of their, their nature as spirit and they are very much part of the creation of god in the, in, in the cosmos and that that just can't be denied and if we deny that then we deny sacred scripture john paul ii himself said to deny the existence of satan is to deny the truth of the gospel and that is a verbatim quote
2: well I appreciate everything that you've, you've came on to be able to tell my listeners about and myself. This has been a great honor to me. And I, and I don't make any bones about the fact that you are, to me, are kind of a hero. And, you know, we live in a society to where a lot of the movies that are out today are these all these, you know, Superman movies and Batman, all these superhero movies. But to me, somebody like yourself that's actually out there, battling evil on a daily basis you guys are the real superheroes out there because that's the other stuff's hollywood it's made up you guys are actually doing something that i i couldn't imagine doing i couldn't imagine stepping into a room with a demon and not just being you know in a corner just quivering and so that that means a lot to me that you would come on and and originally when i asked you on you politely declined uh, because you said that you did not think exorcisms and and uh, demonic possession were part of the paranormal, this was a paranormal show, and I completely one hundred percent agreed with you, and eventually convinced you um, to come on because I didn't want to present it that way. And our listeners know that you know, unfortunately, in the world of podcasts, um, you've only got certain amount of categories. We are listed as a, as a paranormal show, but we talk ab- about a lot of spiritual stuff on this show. And uh-huh. uh, I'm I'm very glad that you were able to to change your mind and come on because I think this is going to do a world of enlightenment for a lot of people out there. So thank you so much, Father Thomas. You're very
1: you're very welcome, Jay. And and in general, I do give interviews. I like to give interviews because it's a way to educate and catechize and evangelize and inform. And um, I think initially when I I just didn't want to see exorcism. Blended with a paranormal kind of experience, because yes, there are attributes that are paranormal, but very, very often the way that paranormal programs now port- are portrayed, very, very often, uh, it's easy to mix exorcism up with something that is really more of a distortion. And so, I'm glad that I came on your show and that you were, you know, willing to, you know, interviewed me and. Hopefully, those who listen to your show will also, you know, gain some some wisdom and understanding and knowledge about this ministry.
2: Thank you so much, Father Thomas, and I won't take up any more of your time. I know you're a busy man, and uh, I appreciate the time you gave us. And I know everybody up there is going to absolutely love this interview.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jerry, for the opportunity to come on your program, and uh, thank you for the questions that you asked. And I hope that you and your interviewers, pardon me, you and your 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 listeners will uh, will find. Um, this interview to be helpful to
2: them. Thank you. Now how cool was that? How often do you get to talk to an, a real, live, authentic exorcist?
1: Um,
0: not many times, that's for sure. And I've, I would love to thank him so much for um, giving it up his time to talk with us. It was amazing.
2: And, you know, we talked a little bit about the movie, the difference between the movie and real life. And to be honest with you, other than the fact that He came to Italy to take the classes, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: met a reporter, and then actually went out to do some exorcisms under a mentor. Most of the movie is is completely different than what the book is. Oh, exactly. Um, No. I mean, for example, I'll give you some of the... In the movie, and hopefully you've seen it, so I'm not giving you a bunch of spoiler alerts, but in the movie, his father owned a, a funeral home, and that was part of the family business. His mother had passed away. Uh, and the reality of it is none of that was true. Oh, it he, wasn't? No, he did work at a funeral home when he was younger, mm-hmm. but his family didn't own it, and his mother is still alive to this oh, day. Oh, good. Uh, so that was through. Um, In the beginning of the movie, he kind of got his faith back by seeing an accident where he administered some last rites yeah, uh, to a, a lady that was hit bad. by a car. That, was so uh, that didn't happen. Oh, it didn't? No. Um, the reporter in the movie was a female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, it was a male that he actually met, Father, uh, or uh, I said Father, but it's uh, Mike Balio. He met him uh, over there, and they decided that once he got hooked up, they would go ahead and, and uh, with the uh, the exorcist that he was mentoring under, uh-huh. Father Carmen, he would go ahead, and he thought it was a cool story, so he wanted to write a book on it. Oh. Uh, now, he did actually go through a lot of these Uh, I think he said approximately 80 exorcisms.
0: He's done that many? Yeah,
2: in a three-month period. He did 80 80, 80 exorcisms with Father Carmen in a three-month period.
0: Oh, well, don't tell no more.
2: And uh, that's all. They've already heard it. Oh, yeah, that's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I forgot already. I can't believe you. I mean, that's unheard of.
2: I know. But in the movie, Father Carmen became possessed, and then he had to do an exorcism on Father Carmen, and that didn't happen. So there was definitely some Hollywood... uh, Jazzing up of the story. That's so, cool, though. So, yeah. So the book is really all thing, but the but the whole thing is he did go over there. He did learn under an experienced exorcist, and they did go through a lot of exorcism. Wow, so. that is eighty
0: in three months. Yeah. That is scary. That's what that is. That's <laughs> not even anything else but scary.
2: So guys, we want to thank you so much. um You guys mean everything to us, and sorry that my voice was shoddy, and hope you don't feel like you got a subpar show because I can tell you we got a lot of good stuff coming up. Um, We've got Gettysburg next week. Everybody, I can't tell you how many requests we've gotten for Gettysburg. And finally, I put it together. And this, um, I got all the notes and everything together for it. It's the most notes I've ever taken for a show. Dang. So it's going to be really cool. I got that one. And then uh, we actually, also next week, uh, Fritz Zimmerman, Mm -hmm. we've got a uh, recording from him. He's going to tell you about real life giants and burial mounds in the Ohio Valley. So that's really cool. So we got that coming up next week. Uh, Patreon stuff. We got uh, there's a, a case I've kind of teased a little bit in the past. Donna Fryman, who she's from the Louisville area, so this is a local story, but it's been on Dateline and a mm-hmm. bunch of other. It's been made national news because she actually killed her husband, and one of the ways they got her off is because they claimed that her husband was possessed. So that's going to be our next Patreon bonus episode. It'll be the story of Donna Fry, And I think you guys are going to love that. So if you haven't signed up for Patreon yet, go to our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. Sign up and uh, you're going to get some cool stories like that. We do most of our true crime stuff. We do that on the Patreon. Mm-hmm. So we don't do much of it on here. But if you like the true crime stuff, we always make sure there's a little bit of eeriness to it. Uh, like this with a possession case.
0: I would like to say thank you, honey bunny, because you have been sick all week. Ever since, I think, you got it um, when we went to the Talbot Inn.
2: Yeah, I think so, last Saturday night. So,
0: I just want to say thank you because you have been fighting this whatever it is you have all week long, but you still managed to do your homework and get all your stories together. And for that, I appreciate you.
2: Well, I feel like that um, our listeners deserve the best. They do. And um, I do whatever it takes I know you to put know a story out. The last thing do. I want to do was not be able mm-hmm. to put a show out this week.
0: And probably the other thing he didn't really want to do is have me try to do
2: it. Regardless, the one thing I always learned doing comedy is the show must go on no matter what. And um, luckily I was able to etch out enough time to be able to not hack and... My voice is horrible, but it's not cutting and cracking like it was all day up to now. So (laughs) maybe it's a little paranormal intervention. It could be. Because this may be the best I've talked the entire day.
0: Yeah, it has been. He's been really annoying in a way, kind of. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding, honey. I want you to feel better. Thank you guys so much for listening. We completely, uh, I don't know, we just want to give you guys the best story and... We want you guys to give us some feedback. I know we didn't say anything in the beginning of the show, but we had a lot of good reviews this week. And uh, we'll get everybody out there on the next show so Jerry don't keep coughing his head off and spreading his lovely germs all through the microphone into your ear.
2: Yeah, I've already been caught an outbreak monkey, so. Oh, God. That's yeah. not fair.
0: But anyway, we love you guys, and we hope you have a wonderful week and, and continue to love one another. Hope you have a blessed week.
2: Yep, thank you, guys, and we'll see you next week.